In today's episode of Speaking Out of Place, we speak with Dr. Jennifer Gomez about her new book, The Cultural Betrayal of Black Women and Girls, A Black Feminist Approach to Healing from Sexual Abuse, which takes on the particular difficulty of centering the voices and experiences of black women and girls when confronting sexual violence in the black community. Dr. Gomez is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Innovation in Social Work and Health at Boston University and a board member and chair of the Research Advisory Committee at the Center for Institutional Courage. Her primary research focus is cultural betrayal trauma, which she created as a framework for understanding the mental, behavioral, cultural, and physical health impact of violence on black and other marginalized youth, young adults, and elders within the context of inequality. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Glad to have you on the show, Jennifer. You've just published this amazing book that is so rich in both data, but also in wisdom. And I was just going to start by reading the foreword to the book by Thema Bryant, president of the American Psychological Association, writes, it's a love song to the survival of black, cis, and trans women and girls. Gomez calls psychologists and other mental health providers to adopt courageous compassion, which means sharing concern and outrage at the realities of sexual violence, as well as concern and outrage for the injustices that contextualize the trauma and recovery process for black women and girls. So one thing I wanted to ask was you say my dancer experiences combined with Jennifer Fried's betrayal trauma research helped you start to grow this idea of cultural betrayal trauma theory. Could you talk a little bit about, first of all, the dancer experiences, and also for those who don't know about Fried's betrayal trauma, maybe talk about what Jennifer talks about there and how you combine these two things. Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'm so happy to be here, David. The opening that you just read comes from Dr. Tama Bryant from the foreword, A Love Song to Black Survivors. So really exciting with that. In terms of kind of the development of cultural betrayal trauma theory, which is the crux of the book, coming from the dancer world and then from Jennifer Fried's betrayal trauma theory. So before I went to college, I was a ballet dancer with the Dance Suite of Harlem. And and so it's a world-renowned ballet company, Black dancers, mostly, but also multicultural dancers. And we were always told by Mr. Arthur Mitchell, who was the co-founder and our sixth director when I was a dancer there, that we carry a mantle greater than ourselves. And so this isn't about any one of us individually. It's about all of us. So what does that mean for my work? Ballet is very hierarchical and very like, you don't talk to other dancers who are a higher rank than you. You don't talk to other dancers who are at a higher level company than you. And yet all of the Black dancers we knew each other enough, or at least were friendly enough. And I surmise that it was because we're assuming that we have some sort of commonality here, being Black and in ballet. So when I retired from ballet and I went to college, and I was working in a dating violence laboratory at San Diego State and came across Jennifer Fried's betrayal trauma theory, which is about how part of the reason why abuse, like incest, like domestic violence is so harmful to you is because it breaches your trust or dependence with the person who's perpetrated. So if you're a child and 
and your parent sexually abuses you, then it's a betrayal of that trust and the need that you have for that person. So in putting these things together and thinking about how I understand trauma in the world and abuse and violence was like, I, I wonder if there's something like this kind of trust that you find in a family or in a relationship in the Black community that then when there's violence in the Black community, as opposed to in a family, it still has this kind of betrayal thing happening that's different from a family, but there's something maybe similar. Then uh, a few years later, I applied to work with Jennifer Fried as her grad student, and she took me on and developed cultural betrayal trauma theory. For our listeners who may not know Jennifer Fried, she's an amazing individual who was on the show. And in her particular case, she was interested in institutional betrayal, specifically, and most importantly, probably universities. What happens when people come into a place where they're going to be nurtured and mentored and their careers are going to be shaped, and then either individuals within that space betray them, people like their mentors, professors, or the institution itself fails to protect them. So what's so interesting about your book, Jennifer, is how you combine it again with the space of a Black community. Another line I love from your book, you say, this book is situated within the predicament of wanting and needing solidarity within and across the Black community. While mm -hmm. acknowledging the cultural betrayal, sexual trauma, and accompanying violence, silencing the terrors that are part of our community and ourselves, could you talk more about the specific need for solidarity, protection, and nurturing, and trust that then becomes, in a very terrible way, betrayed, and that the capacity to seek redress is even more problematic, let's say? Yes. So you can think of kind of like the big bad wolf here mm -hmm. for the Black community is racism, right? This crazy, very structural, very violent, very deadly racism. And so because of that, I propose that people develop this solidarity in the Black community, that white people, white systems might think that we're criminal and barbaric and all these different things, but we know that we're not, and we're connected with each other here. And that's such a protective thing really can be. An example I always love to use is USA gymnast Simone Biles. Further back then, Dominic Dawes, right? When, when they succeed as Black people in the Olympics and all these different ways, then the Black community, we all together kind of succeed because we're all a part part of the same community. And so then what you have is that when you have this violence within the Black community, then it betrays that solidarity, betrays that trust. And so I call it then a cultural betrayal, this violence within the Black community. So then what happens is you can think of the person, in this case of the book, the Black women and girls who have been sexually abused by Black men, is that there's been like a no person's land. Uh, the Black community is unsafe because there was violence here, but also there's silencing here because we can't speak out about the violence. Why? Because the systems are still racist and the systems are still killing us. And so we don't want to say there's anything bad happening here in our community. So then it's unsafe here in the community. But then, as I just said, you can't go outside of the community all the time because there's racism and massage and war. And so then Black women and girls who've been sexually abused in this way are stuck in this no person's land. And I think that piece is kind of the extra doozy, I think, are part of the yeah. reason why this cultural betrayal piece is harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about Jennifer's pride's notion of DARVO, these letters that she uses to describe the response of institutions, but I'm imagining that it might apply in the cases that you're studying, which is when a complaint is brought forward, the first thing people in power do is to deny that it happened, right? To sort of gaslight the person. And the second thing is 
to attack. So that's the DA. But then the last three letters is something that I wanted to talk to you about, which is to reverse victim and offender. So the betrayed becomes uh-huh. the betrayer, right? Yes. So, yeah. Could you talk yes. a little bit about how that reversal happens in your studies? Yes. Yeah, so Darvo from Jennifer Fried is so brilliant. <laughs> and so when I think about it for cultural betrayal, I think about like a very sophisticated <laughs> form yep. of Darvo with what you see happening. Use a case of like Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Remember from 91 when she testified, he called this a high-tech lynching. So the reverse victim and offender, what did he do? Well, Anita Hill is attacking him. So he's no longer the offender. He's now the victim. That's pretty classic, you know, from what we know about Darvo. But the kind of sophisticated part of it is that by calling it a lynching is he's now invoked this long history of white people's public murder of black men and boys. And he's framed then Anita Hill in this position of white woman who is falsifying a case of sexual harassment and gotten white people all riled up, and now he's being lynched. And so he invokes this very strong, painful, very true history of what's happened and is still happening to Black men and boys, but then frames it in this Darvo way so that it's like, if you speak out about this, then you're anti-Black. Right. So if you're a black person, then I don't want to be lynching Clarence Thomas. So and I can't say anything. If you're a white person or if you're any other person who's not black, well, does it make me racist to say that Clarence Thomas is a sexual harasser? I don't want to do that. And so then where is Anita Hill in this no person's land? Mm-hmm. Right. See the same thing with R. Kelly. See the same thing with people who aren't famous, who aren't prior profile in our own community. So it's this Darvo, but it makes the RVO part, the reverse part, makes the victim of racism be primary and that this is an enactment of racism or betraying the race if you're saying hey don't rape us anymore then that's the betrayal as opposed to raping us being the betrayal yeah that's so devastating and many years ago i interviewed anita hill asked Mm -hmm. her so what changed if anything she said one of the most important things is that we have a vocabulary now yeah we have a vocabulary that sidesteps all that yeah deviousness and that's why i think your book is so powerful because you've given us a vocabulary in a very similar way and Mm -hmm. it taps into all these different knowledge bases that the synthesis is so striking. But I wanted to ask you, what kind of resistance have you faced to the study and your work, right? And I Uh know it's a tricky question. And part of that is also, what's been the hardest part of getting this message out to people? What do you find yourself re-explaining over and over and over again? Because there is all this defensiveness, right? Oh, that's a really good question. I want to start with the re-explaining part, (laughs) then we'll go backwards. I'm not betraying the race, and I'm not saying that all Black men are violent. I very firmly believe that Blackness and maleness and the combination of the two is not synonymous with being a rapist or anything like that, you know? So I think having to say that directly, say that indirectly, and feel very unheard when I am saying that. And when to me, it's clear. And when I bring this topic up and then I have men of color, black and not black, who say, ah, but you got to make sure. Let me throw in stats about how white men rape too. So people don't think it's this, you know, and it's like, I just told you that our research says that one in three black women in college are sexually abused in their lifetime. This samples from Lars Johnson and myself, a public university in the Midwest, average age is 20, 
one in three. I say one in three and you hear, but what about black men? That's a problem. And so having to repeat of like, I'm not saying this is all black men. And why can't we have space for black women and girls and what we're experiencing? And it's continuously secondary to what black men are experiencing. I think having to repeat that over and over again is difficult and frustrating. I think in terms of the resistance, so the resistance comes from two camps. And I proposed the theory in 2012, so a little over 10 years ago. And the rejections come in two different flavors. White people's rejection, and I'm speaking specifically of like white academics, editors, peer reviewers, that flavor, chairs, search committee members, and so on, is just like, can't care <laughs> about this. And 10 years ago, it's always been framed in a Black feminist critical race perspective. But especially early on, I made it general to marginalized populations. So I've researched across different marginalized populations of color. And so just the very bigoted, like we know about trauma, e.g. for white people, we don't care about what you're talking about here. This is not valuable. And that rejection has been very strong. (laughs) That and then also in the academic space of what about the white comparison group? Because white people are the, you know, paragon of humanity. If we don't know what's going on with white people, how can we know anything? And if this isn't relevant for white people in terms of in-group race, then what's the value in it? That's that side. The of color side of rejection still has happens in some spaces, not in others, very fortunately, and this has been changing with Black Lives Matter and Me Too. But the flavor, I think maybe a knee-jerk reaction of, like, you're saying this in front of mixed company, right? Like, white people will hear this, and they're going to read this. We can't do that, you know? So a a kind of instantiation of the theory in real time, of like, we need to keep problems in-house, we need to silence this, because we cannot have this out there in the world. It's dangerous. So I think that is part of the rejection. I think another part is... And and who knows why? Potentially, because I I do pull from different disciplines. I pull from Black feminist work, sociology, like all these different places, law of like, this isn't true academic work. I think specifically in psychology, um, Mm. which is where I was educated, of... uh, To be successful in ethnic minority psychology, we have done things a certain way and we have assimilated a lot to be able to survive here. And I'm assuming, or at least I'm taking in like part of the reason I can have a job is because of those elders. And I have a lot of respect for those generations above me. And I very purposefully am not assimilating. Uh, and I very purposefully am speaking in a way that is different from dominant psychological science um, and is more Black feminist, etc. And I was doing that before I knew and was educated into what Black feminism was. And so for the early years, it was just like, I'm weird. I'm not academic enough until I read and reread Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks, Audrey mm-hmm. Lorne, like they're speaking the same way I'm speaking. They're writing the same exactly. way that I'm writing, the same, the same kind of flavor, you know? So I think there's white supremacy happening on both sides, right? Um, mm-hmm. In these rejections, but instantiating obviously in a different way. And I think the most painful for me is when people of color, marginalized people, Black people in, in particular, are rejecting of this work. That's much less and less over the years, but I, I do the work for us, you know, and so it's hard. It's harder for me in the same cultural betrayal way, right? I expect yeah. the discrimination from this side. I need it not to be here in this other side. Yeah, and particularly in the academy. When it's funny because I was having a discussion with a colleague of mine. We were talking about the hyperinflation of the term decolonize. Uh I still use the word. It's a powerful word, but it's been used to describe every little thing. And you see these decolonized methodology 
That's impossible. I mean, in the academy, mm-hmm. the methodology mm-hmm. is the coin of the realm, and you don't get your mm-hmm. PhD or whatever without it. And so mm-hmm. what you're doing in your own very particular way, using this incredible empirical basis to challenge methodology, to say mm-hmm. methodology will not make visible the things that I yes. take at the center of my study, which is Black women and girls. They are the sacrificed people. Their trauma is always inconvenient to the methodology. It will clog up the machine in all sorts of bad ways. Yes. So it must be incredibly frustrating for you. But I want to talk about this wonderful word that you use, dream storming, Mm -hmm. which I think is so cool. And we've been talking about all this bad stuff (laughs) that just weighs on you. When you have a vision and you know it's right. And you're committed to it. And the existing realities just don't give you the space that you need. So tell us about dream storming. Yeah. So thank you for asking. I love dream storming. So dream storming, I came up with the term in 2019 in a collection with other sexual violence researchers, advocates. And the idea here was like, what do we need to do to change the world, to change campus sexual violence? Like what needs to happen? You know, we're going through all these different things that could change. And we just kept like dreaming bigger. But if we change this, we have to change that. If we change that, we have to change this, you know, and all the way up and me just thinking to myself of like we're brainstorming but like we're dreamstorming right Mm -hmm. like we're thinking about like liberation not just like how can we tweak this over here so there's some accountability over there some of the time for some people but how do we make this so in this world in this university in this country etc we don't have these problems anymore Mm -hmm. there is no more sexual violence there is no more racism there is no more sexism there is no more slash noir there's no more nothing like how do we get there and then what are we thinking about to get there. And so for me, dream storming was like, it's like daydreaming, but intellectually and emotionally mm-hmm. while awake. And just really thinking about, let me put this this way. If you are not doing that for, let's say, sexual violence, then what you're doing is mitigation efforts. Mm-hmm. And we need those because people are suffering now. Mm-hmm. So these particular people are safe for this particular weekend on college mm-hmm. camps or whatever. Mm-hmm. But as we're doing that, we're perpetuating the status quo. So what are our efforts in that way? Let's get at the bystanders. Let's make sure women don't wear skirts and restrict their freedom and they don't drink and they don't sleep with anyone. They don't say no to sleeping with somebody. And all we're doing is saying it's okay to rape certain people. And the only story we have then is for this very narrow slice of people, even though people who aren't women are also raped, but we don't discuss that mm-hmm. part. And so then it's like, if you're thinking, how do I get to a world where there is no sexual violence, you're not going to be looking at women's behavior because yeah. that's not where the problem is. And so you're going to be looking at something else. And in the book, I have an entire chapter framed around Jennifer Fried's institutional courage with this dream storming in mind of like, what do we actually do if the world were free, if it were peaceful for everyone, but particularly Black women and girls, what needs to happen and how do we get there? You know, I would love you to write a medium or even short length essay on dreamstorming because Mm -hmm. I think it would have immense pedagogical value. I teach a lot of Adrienne Marie Brown, Bell Hooks. Yeah, yeah. This idea that it speaks in a language that's immediate and practical Mm -hmm. and hopeful at the same time, especially the idea of emergent strategies, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're talking about a kind of emergent strategy. It's, It's speculative. It mm-hmm. it aims big, but it takes small steps and recognizes mm-hmm. small accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And very importantly, it's a great way to think together. 
Yeah. Right. To think together. Yeah. I was just to say thank you for this. I've been thinking about like what editorial do I want to write that could help, and I I don't want to write something negative. I just I can't take my heart can't take no. it right now. So I would love to write something on dreamstorming and get it out. So I just took notes on what you said, so I can go take the homework <laughs> and yeah. go do it. Please, yeah, that'd be wonderful. In fact, love to have you back on a show just on dreamstorming or whatever else you want to think about. Yeah, um, that'd be wonderful. And it goes along the lines of what we're talking about in some ways. The need to think collectively and across disciplines and across different kinds of political spaces. And you make a statement in your book that puts it all together, I think. And you say, my ambitious anchor is that everyone needs <laughs> to know about everything, meaning that trauma researchers and clinicians need to understand structural racism, intersectional oppression, and the context of Black women and girls being erased from the rape problem discourse in the Black community. Mm -hmm. Race scholars need to know about cultural betrayal trauma, abuse violence, and mental health clinicians need rooting in the trauma, race, and Black feminist research while knowing about the white supremacy within the psychology profession and need to, for radical healing within and outside the formal therapy. Mm -hmm. And dominant and mainstream researchers need to grasp the importance of Black feminist theorizing as well as the empirical research that can stem from such theorizing. So that's mm -hmm. a big ticket, but it's so important. <laughs> Because as you know, mm -hmm. you, you know you, you've been in the academy. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be a specialist. And yeah. they guard that mastery. And we use that word, that yeah. really weird word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to claim space. And yeah. so we don't like to talk to other people. And if we do, we do it in a very transitory way. And we want to leave it with our mastery intact, right? Yes. So what you're talking about is dream storming for the big picture. Mm -hmm. And the big goal, which you describe in very precise ways, making mm -hmm. visible Black women and girls. Mm -hmm. and to do that requires all these folks to understand that their practices and behaviors and assumptions have to change if they're going to address this. And what you speak about so powerfully in your book is that we don't allow this kind of erasure on all sorts of other topics, like white mm -hmm. men, of course, you can't, you know, yeah, yeah. bow down. You know. Heaven forbid. <laughs> yeah, you know, get all these people together, we got to solve. Yeah. You know, there was a funny cartoon about, or maybe it was a skit about researchers at a drug company trying to find Viagra. And mm -hmm. they say, oh, look, we found a cure for cancer. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, totally. You know, so uh, talk about how this kind of cross pollination is, if you will, yeah. is necessary. And also you put down certain kinds of things that benefit you for the benefit of the whole. Let me put it that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So there's a subversion of the kind of puff out your chest. I'm the master of the universe. I'm an independent investigator kind of flavor. And in the revision process, I got some kickback and some praise, but some kickback. I have quotes throughout the book and mostly Black feminists, not exclusively, but across a hundred years or more. And I got kickback of, but this is your book. And so it shouldn't be focused on other people. What's your contribution? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that here. I'm doing a mm. we thing here. This isn't a me thing here. And I think it links with the kind of everyone should know everything of if we do that, then we're person-centered. What do mm -hmm. Black women and girls need? And we're not discipline-centered or area-centered. I know about racism, but not people. <laughs> I, I know about trauma, but not people. So if we're person-centered, then you have to be able to know all these different spaces. And so for the book, it's a tall order covering all those different spaces. It's a tall order to read. It's a tall order to write, I'll let me tell you, and me having to consult with a bunch of different people. But it gets us back, I think, I hope, to why are we doing this work? You know, like mm -hmm. what brought us into this work? 
Was it really your ego? Because maybe you should step aside. For lots of us, it really was, I want to change the world. I want to do something that benefits actual people Mm -hmm. on a smaller or larger scale. So if we do that, then you enter. I used to tell my students this years ago, and I think I have in the book in one of the chapters of like, so-called mastery is fool's gold, Mm -hmm. like uninteresting, unimportant. And so get rid of that. And the book is challenging insofar as it takes a Black feminist perspective as truth and as factual and starts there and doesn't make excuses for that and doesn't compare constantly to white norms and doesn't placate of like some people think racism is individual, but other schools of thought is that it's Mm -hmm. structural. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. I say it's structural. It's cultural. And I'll tell you how. Here are the citations. Go read more if you want. But what that means is that if you have felt like you're an expert in X, Mm -hmm. then you're going to read parts of the book and be like, I've been doing it wrong, or I don't know about this, or does that make me a bad person? And then I would invite us to be like, is your ego the point? Go have a stomp, go have a cry, go feel insecure, (laughs) feel defensive, and then come back and say, what is my point again? If it's not about my ego, then I have to be willing to learn and be learning in this lateral manner across different academic disciplines, but also across community activists and, you know, all sorts of different people, people with experience, like all different people. And what a better space we would be in when we pull from knowledge and aren't just reinventing the wheel to push our careers through. Yeah, you're much younger than me, but you've got it. I couldn't help think when you were speaking that, you know, I'm a humanist at base and you were an artist. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that give you a kind of strength? And I think it does. Give you a kind of strength and agility and flexibility, right? And I think Mm -hmm. about dancing, which requires all that, right? Yeah. Strong, agile, flexible, very disciplined. Yeah. And I think your discipline comes out in that you have a very clear goal. Can you talk about, this is such a weird question, but- I'd love for you to take a shot at it. Yeah. I, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that was like the different ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. Like uh, artistry is so valuable you know, and, and just being like, you can be totally transformed and healed and moved when you do dance yourself, when you're learning a piece, when you're working with a choreographer, when you're seeing it. And so I think that for me coming into academia and then having Jennifer Fry as my grad advisor, who's a you know revolutionary, just being like, I don't buy that there's this one narrow way of thinking about the world. It's not true for me. I just don't believe it. And just coming from that place and feeling much more confident in that place because of the artist background. I think also I feel like artists can be like what you do, but it's also sort of like who you are. Yep. Like I'm still yep. an artist, even though I don't dance currently. And so it's like... I feel things so deeply and my emotions drive me in such a positive way. And again, in a way that is totally normal to me and very abnormal from many other academics. And so being able to say, but I, I think you're wrong, or I think that's wrong, or I think I think that speaking and writing about human beings in the distancing way that academics can yep. do is harmful by definition. And I worked really hard in this book because I am an academic. I have internalized many of these norms myself to really center and recenter Black women and girls' humanity, you know, and having a even just a we as opposed to like a Black women and girls, they do something. Yeah, yeah. Like it's we, this is us. And speaking from a place that I've written and spoken 
an isolated piece, mostly public scholarship, maybe a concluding paragraph in a peer-reviewed article. But I really tried to have the whole book be written from that emotional, intellectual, human place and just fought for it and said, I know it's different. The book is published by the American Psychological Association and cheers to them for publishing a book like this. Um, But having to go in and just say like, I know it's different. I know you're frightened. But if we want to be including different kinds of people that are typically included in the field of psychology and related disciplines, then we need to have different cultures be alive on the page and not mm-hmm. just say you can be different here as long as you do everything the same. That is not what our goal should be. Yeah. What was the most challenging part of the book to write? And then what was the most satisfying? Ooh, most challenging and most satisfying. Yeah. Maybe the the most satisfying in a petty way, but in a true way. Mm-hmm. I was at CASB at Stanford, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, on leave for a year to be able to write this book. And so I was able to take in so much information from what is going on in the world. And when I would feel so frustrated about things, I could channel it into the book and in particular into that chapter seven, the institutional courage chapter. And so that chapter has vignettes in it of how things go wrong, how there's institutional betrayal, what would institutional courage look like? What would dreamstorming be if this world were different? Mm -hmm. And being able to take things that were really happening to my Self, to people that I know that it happened in the past, whatever, and kind of shape them artistically into these vignettes and then like change the outcome, like rewrite the story dreamstorming wise into a different outcome Mm. and be like, even in cases where I don't have power here in this actual situation that's currently happening, my hand to the heavens, I hope people read this (laughs) book and that would be a larger impact than whatever I could be having in this space anyhow. And so that was incredibly satisfying to be able to channel the pain and frustration and Mm. kind of rewrite the ending through dreamstorming in a way that goes to more people than than would have. Yeah. What has been the reaction of different kinds of of readers to the work during conversation, you know, mm-hmm. maybe young yeah. women or whatever. So I did something that maybe was the smartest thing I did, and I kind of fell into it which was I finished the book in March of 2022 and then was revising until it was due the end of May to the publisher. I got informal peer reviewers between one and three to read each chapter of the book. And I pulled people who were experts in this particular area. The book is very broad, as we talked about. So who were experts in an area, who who were Black women, who were race scholars, et cetera, et cetera. And I had some peer reviewers, informal peer reviewers, be white scholars who I really respect and who I know want to get this content because I'm not going to write for the white person who can't care about it, but I will write for the white person who wants to get this. And so I had a few of them read some of the chapters. That was enlightening Mm -hmm. (laughs) of people who want to get this and who adore me and who I adore being defensive you know, wow. and, and having a hard time with the content and having a hard time with the tone of voice, what it meant for them. Like, is this saying that the mental health care system is racist? So therefore, by definition, then I'm racist since I'm in this field, even though I'm all I'm doing is trying to work and having and going to that place and being like, I didn't think that that this would happen, but it did. And talking with another Casby fellow, Michael Bernstein, who's in computer science at Stanford, and saying like, what do I do? Like, I, yeah. I, I 
I'm not going to change the tone of the writing. I'm not going to change this fundamentally, but I do want people to get it if they want to get it. So what can I mm -hmm. do? And he talked to me about how in, in computer science, things are very interdisciplinary. So you, you typically have to state where you're coming from, like what specific field and theory you're speaking from. And that's very obvious to do, I guess, in computer science. And so I was like, huh, I wonder if I put together like a black feminist primer, like in the introduction chapter and just said like, here's what black feminism is like 101. And here's what that means for you in this book. And I think it's one of the smartest things that I did because white supremacy, if you've been in this country for any length of time, affects us all. So it isn't just like bad white people who think mm -hmm. this way. It's also the rest of us who also have internalized these norms, mm -hmm. you know, and to say like, here's what you can expect with this. Here's the emotionality and why, why that's important. The ethic of caring from Patricia Hill Collins. Here's the epistemological differences and distances that you will have. Here's the cultural knowledge. So the way that it feels for a cultural outsider to read the book is the way I feel all the time reading white people's work. And I had to do that translation to be like, what do you, why would you use? Oh, you individualism, got it. You think if you just try hard, you can be successful. That's where you're coming from. Now, if I understand that, I can get to how you got to this argument. Okay, I'm doing that constantly. Many of us are doing that constantly. And so you will have to do that if you're a cultural outsider in this book in different ways and do it. I don't know what yeah. to say besides do it. It's a white supremacist to not do it. Yeah. And if you don't fancy yourself as a white supremacist, then privilege a black feminist perspective as factual and legitimate. Nope. And that they would never accept that label, right? They would code it in a different way. You know, the idea is that the white cis male is the mm -hmm. universal neutral. Mm -hmm. Objective. Just, just, mm -hmm. just assumed. And it's funny. When you were speaking, it was both, again, so familiar and so depressing, <laughs> right? Yes. That uh, yeah. I was talking with a great colleague of mine, Harry Elam, who's now president of Occidental. He's a great, great guy, African-American scholar, theater. And he was the vice provost of undergraduate education at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, I think it was something as incidental as pronouns or something like that. Yeah. And why do students care about this? And we came up with this term called the new effective classroom, which is that mm -hmm. our job is to teach. And if using the wrong pronoun or not even talking about pronouns creates static in the environment, then we're not doing our jobs. Why don't we just embrace mm -hmm. it? It's not yeah. a big deal. But a lot yeah. of our colleagues think, oh, my God, my authority is being questioned yeah. <laughs> and my whole universe is now in peril. The world changes. Yeah. If you're really an educator and really a researcher, you accept new knowledge. Mm -hmm. You don't make sure it doesn't exist. You say <laughs> exactly what you just yeah. said. You process yeah. it, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe you reject it. That's fine. But you go through mm -hmm. a kind of due diligence. And what you're talking about in your comments was people who really are putting themselves, again, ego, putting themselves in front of their jobs. If you're going to be a successful clinician, mm -hmm. in what other case would you disregard data? Yes. You know? <laughs> Well, you yes. know, we're not going to do x-rays today. We're just going to go in there, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. But it's with issues of race and gender. It's just huh? permissible, which yes. must drive most reasonable, responsible, ethical clinician academic mm -hmm. must drive you up the wall. Absolutely. And yeah. so hypocritical, right? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Like, do you hear it? Do you see it? What you just did? Like, like, even with your own code of what is scientific or what is academic, you've betrayed it mm -hmm. by your own definition of what this should be. And as the world is changing, we're like, you're saying like the due diligence and thinking through it. Like for me with pronouns, where I sit with it is that as a black person who presents as a woman, who's a Gomez, I don't want my gender primed at the very beginning of when I'm introduced. Mm -hmm. So I 
don't, I don't use it myself. And if you read my bio, you'll see I don't put my pronouns or acknowledge my gender in speaking. Mm -hmm. I work with students and because things are changing, we have this discussion on the first day of class and I don't ask for pronouns. I ask for gender if you want to disclose it. Here's why I'll go first here. You know, I don't disclose. I don't even give a reason. And some people do disclose, some people don't. And so we're still having this discussion. We're still problematizing through mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. and how this could affect different marginalized mm -hmm. people differently, culturally differently, but it still is on the table because yeah. the world is changing. And I should say like changing in awareness, like mm -hmm. trans people, gender queer, like ain't new. This gender diversity has been a thing for all of humanity, you know, but our awareness is different. And so we have to be changing with it and be responsible educators, researchers, like you said, taking in the information, teaching with it and through it. How do we all think about this? You know, how can it be if I'm in a power position over here as a professor, as a cis person, but also oppressed as a black woman, as a goma, you know what I mean? Like, how do these yeah. things come together and how do we discuss this? It's so exciting and so important. Yeah. And why wouldn't you do that? It's like the power of education. Exactly. exactly. Um, That's the key. I love that story. What you're doing is you're creating a pedagogical moment. Mm -hmm. where if you didn't discuss it, it would be a moment of ignorance. Yes. Right? And the yes. other thing that you do, which I think is so important, is it shows respect. Yes. It shows respect precisely. And you gain your students' trust. And mm -hmm. all those things, without them, education cannot happen. It just yes. becomes, I'm learning this because I'm told to do so. And mm -hmm. you know, you're a psychologist. That <laughs> stuff, you forget that stuff. You learn yeah. for the test and it's just because it has no relevance to your life. Yes, yes. Right? Yes, yeah. And you begrudgingly learn it because you need to get ahead with things. Yeah. It doesn't do anything for you in a real way. And it's such a lost opportunity. And exactly what, you know, people object to these kinds of discussions say is, oh, you're wasting class time. You're no, you're not. It's so <laughs> yeah. people, students are in the class. So if yep. the humans in your class can't learn because you're not doing something, how would changing that be a waste of class time? It's not, exactly. but again, that's person-centered, right? Not yep. discipline-centered. And I think that what you said, David, about like the respect for people, the genuine respect of like different people land in different ways mm. on if they want to use to disclose their gender or not for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And for so many things related to social justice, you can have reasonable, ethical, social justice-oriented people who fall on different sides of a given issue. Mm -hmm. That's all right, yep. you know? Yep. But you have, like you said, the pedagogical moment and where the students are learning, I'm learning, I'm updating what I'm thinking about, you know, and, and then things keep on moving forward in a way that is, heaven help us all, like more equitable than it's yeah, been, yeah, you know, and yeah. continuously so, hopefully. Well, I love the trajectory of the book, and I understand now why you front-loaded Black Feminist Theory is such an important, it's a, a primer in itself. I would excerpt it and have everybody read it, you know, yeah. but the rest <laughs> of the book has a wonderful trajectory, and I want to end, oh, thank you. Uh, if you will, mm -hmm. healing, because mm -hmm. that's sort of the point. And you write the psychological framework for radical healing. I mm -hmm. underscore the word radical because mm -hmm. it's not these compromised healings that paste over yes. stuff. You're getting at the root of something, right? Yes. So the psychological framework of radical healing is grounded in five anchors. Selective, critical consciousness, cultural authenticity and self-knowledge, radical hope, strength, and resistance. Mm -hmm. These answers can be found through practical strategies for engaging in radical healing. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so this comes from French and colleagues and from the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective, who's come up with this framework. And so my understanding of it, and maybe like a, a crux in it, is that 
the person is not the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like the systems of oppression, the violence is the problem. And so given that the world is still oppressive and still violent, how do we engage and how do we get closer to liberation and to this radical healing? And like you said, like not band-aids or something like that. And so some of these anchors pull out this collectivism thing is what lots of our cultures have, (laughs) natural, more collectivist orientation and how there is so much strength in that. And I think even as I mentioned before, of like the the phrasing for me, of not like them, but our experience, there is strength in this being our experiences as opposed to your experiences. And for something like rape and incest that is by definition often so isolating and so you are the only one in the world who has experienced this in this particular way from this particular person that is true and so many of us have experienced things along this vein and when we know that then the feelings of isolation can be interrupted with this understanding Mm -hmm. that many of us have been through these things and if that person over there can experience joy maybe I can experience joy too. And maybe this is a different kind of harm and cultural betrayal, sexual trauma and abuse as a collective community level harm than means community level healing and interpersonal healing. The radical hope piece for me, but it isn't hope that's like toxic hope of Mm -hmm. like, everything will be okay. Everything will be fine. It instead is like, no, things are crappy. They're awful. Mm -hmm. And how can I still experience joy and happiness and believe that the world can be different, even in the face of all the evidence suggesting otherwise, and how powerful that is. And I think the orientation that this framework has includes understanding your history, understanding your past. And so it's one of the reasons, again, for the many quotes across the earliest is 1892, maybe, quote from Anna Julia Cooper is, yes, this is painful. On the one hand, it's very frustrating that we can be having the same discussions that people were having Mm. in the 1800s now. Like, that's painful. That's not so great. And it also, it puts us in line and in lineage with all the magnificent Black women and girls who have been fighting this and experiencing joy through this Mm. before us and contemporarily with us. There's strength in that. And the framework focusing on that strength and focusing on not resilience, but resistance Mm -hmm. to like, you can still, this can still be a rape culture and this can still be the world that we know that it is. And I'm still going to find joy inside of myself and with the people that I love and with nature and these things can can happen even as the sky is falling, you know, and the world is crumbling. And that's powerful, I think. The other thing that I wanted to bring out is that we've been talking about the case histories mostly in the United States. But to Mm -hmm. me, this really has international resonance because wherever you have white supremacy, you Mm -hmm. have this kind of dynamic. Have you found this in your own experiences? I have. So I went to South Africa in 2015 with Jennifer Fried. She was invited to speak at the International Women's Forum that was there. And I got to tag along and finagle an invite at University of Johannesburg. And just, it was 2015. So I was 
working on the theory for three years, like still early on. And I just brought my figures and my ideas and we all sat around and talked about it. And it was fascinating, disturbing, etc. all the things that this cultural betrayal thing still resonated there. And because white supremacy is still there and manifested in this different way where you have in South Africa, people who Americans would call black, but in South Africa are different cultures. And then you have these different cultures of what Americans would say black people and the same like in-group stuff and the Mm -hmm. same cultural betrayal stuff happening. And because everywhere that white supremacy has touched, then you see, and that so many places around the world, you can see potentially a flavor of cultural betrayal manifesting its own way, Mm -hmm. right? Given how cultures have reacted and responded and how inequality manifests. But it's a disgusting thing (laughs) that, that it could be relevant across different countries and potentially a hopeful thing to be able to be combating white supremacy in this way, because like there, there could be violence potentially, Mm -hmm. but there wouldn't be this cultural betrayal harm. There'd be the typical harm of violence, but not this cultural betrayal harm that's linked specifically with mental health outcomes, specifically with cultural outcomes like internalized prejudice that does not exist without white supremacy. And so in that way, it's exciting to think about the solidarity that could happen Mm -hmm. in this like horizontal collaboration, not US centric thing, but like a horizontal collaboration or sharing of knowledge bidirectionally of like, how can we understand culture betrayal? in these different contexts in order to combat that, the violent silencing that can happen, all the things that we've been talking about, as well as the white supremacy that drives it and feeds it. Oh, it certainly is. Mm -hmm. The title of the book is The Cultural Betrayal of Black Women and Girls, A Black Feminist Approach to Healing from Sexual Abuse. Jennifer, the book does so many things well and in such a unique way. And one thing that I really appreciate so much is that you never lose sight of the main goal. And with all this amazing information all these disciplines, you synthesize it well, and what gives it fluidity and also strength and focus is your commitment to centering Black women and girls, to empower them to think through these really vexing and complicated issues. And it yeah. fills out the book in a really wonderful way. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, David. This was phenomenal and such a healing experience for me. So thank you. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.